the key to restoration is restoring biodiverse ecosystems. And of course, we also need to eliminate the greenhouse gases, and there's no argument about that. It's just that's eliminating a symptom without actually addressing the problem. How is biodiversity loss potentially a greater threat to humanity and our planet than climate change? Why have we been underestimating the true potential for soil to sequester carbon, even though we already know that it's an effective, proven practice? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and sponsor Buffy, which makes bedding that's earth-friendly and cruelty-free. Its newest comforter is called The Breeze, made 100% from eucalyptus fiber to regulate temperature and keep us cool and comfortable all night long. I'll share more with you later along with a discount code, but for now, to our conversation with Adam Sachs, a climate activist, writer, and the executive director of Biodiversity for a Livable Climate. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Well, I had been a vegetarian for 40 years and vegan for 15 of those, so I've followed organic agriculture and related social issues for a long time. I was trained as a naturopathic physician, so I've long been aware of issues of environmental health. And I became a climate activist at around the turn of the millennium. There aren't too many generations who can say something like the turn of the millennium. So I just want to take advantage of that. (laughs) And for the first eight years of my climate activism, Like everybody else, I've focused on emissions, reductions, and alternative energy. But around 2008, I began to wonder whether that work was enough. We were doing all this effort to get solar and wind out there, and emissions kept going up. And okay, it was early on in the development of the technology, relatively early on, but still, Things were going in the wrong direction. So I began to wonder whether that work was enough and I began studying holistic management, Alan Savory's approach to grazing management. And from that, went into understanding more the power of the natural world to heal climate and ecosystems. And that got me going on eco-restoration and climate in earnest. And... There is work all over the world on regenerating healthy ecosystems that is a constant inspiration for me. Mm. Well, before we dive more into that, I want to take a step back. So you've had careers in education, holistic medicine, computer technology, politics, and advocacy. What was your greatest learning lesson from this multifaceted background that you use to support your work with sustainability and regeneration today? I think the outcome of my varied careers is that I've learned that everything is connected. And there isn't anything that I've done that doesn't have an impact on the way I think and the way I connect 
ideas and observations and processes that need to take place. So I've been primed to look at climate from a systems perspective. And I think that is one of the things that is most lacking in our conventional approach to climate and something we we desperately need to ramp up because climate is not just about greenhouse gases. It's about so much more. And also today, you're the executive director of Biodiversity for a Livable Climate. For our Green Dreamer who may not be familiar with your work, can you share briefly the organization's inspirations and mission? We're an educational organization and think tank. And our mission is to restore ecosystems, which many people around and organizations around the world are doing. Our particular role is educating people about possibilities. And that's something that is far less common. So we, we look at what I would call positive variants. And these are studies and experiments that are far beyond what you normally think a system can generate. So for example, there's a a microbiologist named David Johnson at New Mexico State University who's been working on a new composting technique for several years. And the basis of it is that the mycelial network, which is a fungal network that puts out these long and very thin rootlets to work with plant roots to transfer nutrients. And so uh, about 80% of plants have, have fungal collaborators and the fungi get dissolved minerals and they exchange it with the green plants for sugars. So it's kind of a marketplace that they've got going. And what happens with conventional composting or even some pretty good alternative composting approaches is that people turn over the compost. And when they turn the compost over, they break those mycelial connections. So they kind of negate the work that the mycelium naturally do. David has developed an approach to composting that doesn't break the mycelial connections. And he's seen a five-fold or more increase in the amount of carbon stored, in the productivity of the plants. And he's doing this in the high plains of New Mexico, which is far from an ideal farming environment. And still he's getting these remarkable results. Uh, He also has trouble getting them peer reviewed since everybody knows that they're impossible, so they don't review them. Uh, That's starting to change as he gets more experimental verification for what he's done. That is an example of, of a positive variant mm-hmm. of expanding our view of the possibilities because if we don't have an expansive view of the possibilities, we narrow our thinking. And if we're not thinking something, we're not going to do it. Mm. So what we do is help provide thinking tools and paths to action. By focusing on positive variants, what you mean is that instead of just focusing on what you're going against, it's more about dreaming up all the possibilities and allowing ourselves to get creative to to allow us to have an actual destination to move towards rather than just moving away from something. 
many of these possibilities are already in existence. Mm. So it's about striving to realize them, to promote them, to get more people doing them. So an example of the importance of positive variance is that the climate studies that are coming out and starting to mention eco-restoration is that the studies that have been done on, on land addressing carbon capture and, and sequestration, keeping carbon out of the atmosphere and in the soils where it belongs, the historical studies have been done on degraded landscapes. They've been done on land that's already half dead. So the results they get from trying to sequester carbon in that land are relatively poor, but that's the baseline. So people are saying, yeah, we can, we can capture one third of our annual emissions by healing soils. They've got numbers that are confusing them because if these same studies were done on healthy, truly biodiverse landscapes, then the results would have been much different. One third of our annual emissions saved through sequestration on land, that's a very low bar and it can do so much more Hmm. than that. And that's what we have to emphasize. So every bioregion is different. When studies are looking at the carbon sequestration potential of the lands, they can't base it off of like one study because the quality of land really matters in understanding any land's ability to sequester carbon. Yes, the quality of land really matters. But overall, around the world, soils are degraded. And so you're not going to get optimal results. You're not going to get good results to strive for. And first, before you do those studies and expect to base future action on them, you need to restore the land. And depending upon how arid it is, that could take 25 years in a very temperate area like New England. It could take three or four years. That's an important element to consider when we're assessing these various approaches. I feel like today, conversations to do with climate change really largely only focus on the need to reduce greenhouse gases as much as possible. And you mentioned this earlier. Of course, this is an important part of the equation, but you have a much more holistic and long-term view on this. So what is wrong or short-sighted about our current approach to addressing climate change solely through the goal of going carbon neutral with our human activity? Well, first of all, If we went carbon neutral, if we went back to 280 parts per million in the atmosphere, that would be a good thing. But it's far from adequate in addressing climate at the current stage of the game. We have lost many species. We have destroyed many ecosystems. And we need those to be functional in order for the biodiversity to return. And and there's more literature coming out lately that indicates biodiversity is a far more serious problem than climate, as hard as that is to believe. And that climate challenges and climate disruption 
are actually a function of the biodiversity. If you restore the biodiversity, you will address much if not all of that climate disruption. If you address climate disruption, you're not necessarily gonna bring back the biodiversity. The biodiversity really comes first. Mm -hmm. And biodiversity does a lot more than address carbon. It is renewed photosynthesis on many levels and biodiverse ecosystems cool the biosphere. They're far more resilient to disease and violent weather. They produce much more food for all creatures, including us, and normalize water cycles so droughts and floods become much less of an issue. Mm. It's interesting you put it this way because I feel like most of the time we think about this the other way around. So it's about how climate change is driving and contributing to biodiversity loss. But what you're saying is that biodiversity loss also is driving climate change. Yes, and I think climate change has gotten to the point that it's gotten to over 10,000 years. It's not just the Industrial Revolution. It's gotten to the point it's gotten to because of the loss of biodiversity. Now, that being said, with climate disruption and extreme heat, that certainly also affects biodiversity. Mm. But the key to restoration is restoring biodiverse ecosystems. And of course, we also need to eliminate the greenhouse gases, and there's no argument about that. It's just, that's eliminating a symptom without actually addressing the problem. So look, the Earth, planet Earth, is a product of living systems. And this goes back four billion years. And Earth is, nothing like Mars or Venus or many other planets because of living things. We have an oxygen atmosphere because of cyanobacteria and chloroplasts and photosynthesis, because of living things. That's why we have an oxygen atmosphere. We have a global system that functions in a manner that is a signature of living systems. And Jim Lovelock, who did some early fantastic scientific work on, on systems and detecting pollution and a number of things was asked by NASA when they were working on early space exploration, how can we tell if there's life on Mars? And he, he said, you know, he gave it some careful thought. And he said, you can tell because living systems create atmospheres that do not behave the way non-living atmospheres behave. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of signs of motion and, and gradients and weather that you don't see on, on dead planets. I mean, you do see various activity on dead planets and there's tectonic and volcanic action and all that, but there is a special look to a living planet. And, and we've got it, and it's this way because microbes started four billion years ago building up a living system. And part of what makes Earth what it is is the extreme complexity of living systems. Mm. The most complex systems in the universe are the living systems. And 
the living systems bring stability wherever they go. Now, certainly there can be all kinds of cosmic changes that upend living systems. And when the meteorite killed the dinosaurs 260 million years ago, that put an end to much of life on Earth. But we otherwise have a unique and dynamic planet that is a result of life. Mm. So... Given how much more there is to climate change than just carbon emissions, why do you think that this climate change conversation has only focused primarily on how human activity is emitting greenhouse gases, while not so much addressing this holistic picture of how we're also breaking the vital systems needed to regulate our carbon water cycles, regulate the climate, and restore our lands? I hope nobody is offended by this, but we humans are a rather odd species. We have a great deal of cleverness. We have those opposable thumbs. And we are very good at expanding carrying capacity. That is the ability of the habitat we're living in that only wants to give us a thousand pounds of food per acre and get it to give us a hundred thousand pounds of food per acre. But there's a price for that. And we are now seeing the price for not only industrial agriculture, but for 10,000 years of disrupting planetary ecosystems. Now, all creatures work to create habitats that are most favorable to themselves. So they move things around. Beavers change water flow. Microbes create micro-environments for themselves. And we, of course, do our best to build things so we can be fruitful and multiply. Unfortunately, we don't do that with an eye to future consequences, partly because the consequences unfold a lot less quickly than our lifetimes. So we don't see the consequences The people who spearheaded the Industrial Revolution never foretold these consequences, and there was no way they could, although some people could, but by and large, it was not going to become an issue until further down the road, the way we've been kicking climate down the road in the 21st century. So it sounds like humans are trying to outsmart nature. But by doing so, we're really not taking into account the unintended consequences that may occur. That's, that's a very good way of putting it. And in, in fact, there is no outsmarting nature, as people say, nature bats last. And it's true. We can do all the damage we want, and nature will recover, just not in time to benefit us. But we know how to restore billions of acres of land between the poles. And if we, uh, if we do that, we might have a good shot at, at surviving. Mm. The way we're going down the road, extinction is a, an increasing possibility and even more conservative mainstream climate commentators are starting to talk about that. 
Well, let me frame it the other way. So given that we do know what it takes to restore our landscapes and what our ecosystems need to be able to function healthily, why is it that it feels like society is still moving in the other direction of degradation and destruction? Well, I I think that humans have evolved with cultures. And culture, in fact, we're, we're kind of an ornery animal and cultures have evolved to support cooperation, to kind of bring us together despite our various differences. And culture also is based on years, decades, generations of experience. So we have a bedrock in culture. Now, if something changes too quickly, culture is is very stubborn and with good reason. You learned from your ancestors 500 years ago about this poisonous plant, and you don't have to experiment with it anymore. We've learned that lesson. Culture provides us with that kind of library of knowledge and experience so we can more readily survive wherever our habitat is. If there is a sudden change of any kind, and sudden could mean overnight or it could mean over a period of 10 years or 20 years, but if there's a change like that that has great impact, culture in general is not nimble enough to adapt to that. Now, since the European expansion a few hundred years ago, cultures have softened a bit in some ways, but not in every way. And you can see now that there are people who are not going to admit that there's climate change because they feel like they've got too much to give up if we do admit that. And they're right. There's a lot to give up when we admit it. So the best way to go is not to admit it. And and that's the power of culture. You get stuck wanting a set of things even when you can't have them or when you shouldn't have them and you keep striving for them and you go wildly astray. Mm. And I think that's what's going on now with the various conflicts around the world. Now that we're having to go against the grain, what's been your greatest challenge helping to expand the conversation on climate change and to support action in a more holistic manner? We began expanding the conversation with our very first conference, which is called Restoring Ecosystems to Reverse Global Warming. And we had climate activists and land managers and some scientists and the general public come in to hear what we had to say. And a consistent response throughout was, why didn't somebody tell us this before, that what nature can do is so powerful? that can actually address these these issues. They, they began a process for us of just having this conversation with whoever would listen and putting it up on our Facebook page and continuing through a series of conferences. And, and that was one part of it. And there are some people in those groups that say, aha, I got it. What can I do? And they go out and get to work and they help us with various kinds of projects and with funding. But most people go back into the the general arena 
of public public affairs and debate and are they're pummeled by the greenhouse gas message hmm. and it's very hard to hang on to this i don't know that it's a more subtle subtle message it is in our current context but it's very hard to hang on to it when you're constantly being confronted with we've got to reduce greenhouse gases and we've got to get this alternative energy going we've got to do this and we've got to do that and none of it includes addressing the destruction of the natural world so people have a hard time holding on to the concept at times it bears a lot of repetition and i had the same experience when i first started learning about it i was well okay that sounds interesting but can nature really do that and it's taken me quite a while to realize yes nature really can do that do you think part of the challenge is that the idea that climate change is just about levels of greenhouse gases that's a more simplistic way of approaching or addressing climate change and therefore it's a, maybe this message is more persistent because people like things to be simple whereas when you talk about how it's really a much more complex picture and we have to address biodiversity and there's so many layers to that it's a lot less straightforward for people to bring this conversation to other people I think as a sound bite it's less straightforward but in reality the biodiversity conversation is when you get down to it it's a lot more intuitive and people can understand that i have a picture that i took of my front yard and it was a 90 degree day and i measured the temperature from under the bushes out to the asphalt and it's a favorite kind of surprise quiz that i that i give people it's 90 degrees out what do you think the difference in degrees fahrenheit is between the coolest and the warmest spot in the picture the warmest spot being the asphalt the coolest spot being under the bushes so should i ask you that quiz i'm really bad at conceptualizing like temperature changes <laughs> okay that's fair enough but you've walked in a field on a hot sunny day and and then found yourself walking in the woods what do you think the difference is in degrees fahrenheit 20 that is what people often guess but the difference in temperature between underneath the bushes and over the hot hot asphalt was 60 degrees fahrenheit wow and that all has to do with shade and water we can bring those temperature differences under control even with elevated greenhouse gases depending upon how we manage the land. So an easy way to conceptualize this actually is to picture, you know, even if we were to go back to pre-industrial levels of carbon in the atmosphere, if the entire earth were just asphalt, that would heat up really quickly because we don't have the right natural ecosystems in place to regulate that temperature. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good example. We would heat up pretty quickly and in fact we're seeing the equivalent of that as the arctic ice melts and where the feedback loop of the heat of the sun on the water heats the water and the water melts more ice and then there's more water exposed to heat up which melts more ice and you've got this 
positive feedback loop going and that the water is acting similarly to the asphalt, although water holds heat a lot better than asphalt does. And you mentioned earlier that it's been a challenge to get this to be a part of the core of the mainstream conversation to do with climate change. But what have you found to be the most effective in getting this message across? And what do you think we'll need to be able to really open up this dialogue? Well, what's most effective in getting this climate conversation going has been the ravages of nature in the past couple of years. I think that has really impressed people with what we're dealing with. More and more people will be affected and afflicted, saying, hey, what's going on here? Sea level rise, billions of dollars. I mean, it's silly to measure the death of a planet in dollars, but that's our current currency of thought. Billions of dollars will be lost along coastlines around the world and certainly in the United States. The largest naval base in the world in Norfolk, Virginia, is underwater a lot of the time. The Pentagon is scrambling to figure out how to, how to fix this, and there really is no way to fix it. They're just going to raise the level of everything in the naval base, the roads and the buildings and all of that by one, two, three, four feet. It's very, very expensive to do that. And one of the Pentagon generals said that will probably give us 20 to 50 years with that naval base. So nobody is exempt, not even the U.S. military. Hmm. So you think that we have to be able to feel the impacts of climate change in order to talk about it in a more open way? I think that's the case. I mean, that's our experience so far. Island nations of the world are furiously talking about it because they're experiencing it in a very visceral way. And usually the question in talking about how to address climate change is how can we go net carbon neutral as soon as possible? But to frame this in a more holistic manner with a multifaceted approach, how can we restore our healthy ecosystems and conserve biodiversity as soon as possible? As you mentioned earlier, it depends upon the ecosystem. But as I said, we, all, we know how to do this in ecosystems in various habitats around the world. I mean, holistic management is a good example. Holistic planned grazing is a, an approach to managing cattle and other, other ruminants on grasslands that was developed by a scientist named Alan Savory, and he's been working for close to 60 years to try to get people to notice that what he does works, and thousands of people have noticed that, but he gets all kinds of grief from conventional range science and other scientists. However, in the past, oh, three to five years, He's made huge progress because what he does works. Getting people to adopt some of these practices is a really good way to go. And his book, Holistic Management, the third edition, it's about planning. It's about how to plan these things. It's not specifically oriented towards grazing animals. It's about any kind of planning that we do. And it's particularly oriented to farming and ranching. 
but it's applicable in lots of other situations as well. So the information is out there, and there are many other people who are working on things like this. They're, the permaculturists have developed major insights into how land works and how plants interact with each other and with the weather and with animals and with humans and with insects. There's a, a huge body of knowledge out there that's available for all of us to use, and it's just a question of deciding to do it. Mm -hmm. Different people will do it in different ways, and that's great. We need diversity in in our ways of thinking and in our our behavior and our work, just as we need diversity of species in an ecosystem. But it all has to be aimed at the increase of photosynthesis and capture of heat and cycling of water and carbon in ways that are beneficial to the entire planet's worth of living things. Well, we're always eager to learn ways that we as individuals can help make a positive difference. And again, what's commonly discussed is, of course, ways for us to individually lower our carbon footprint. But through the lens of needing to restore our ecosystems as a key part of this equation, what do you think we can do as individuals to support this restoration? One of the things you can do is go to farmers markets and find farmers who are selling products that have been raised organically and regeneratively. Regeneratively meaning it's a management process that improves the land every year you use it rather than depletes it of nutrients and soil and exposes soil to the atmosphere which oxidizes the carbon and puts it back up in the air. We are pretty good at understanding many of the regenerative processes that we can use. And you can, you can use them in your window box or on your 10,000 acres or anything in between. If we don't have large areas of land ourselves, what can we do to support this? If you have a yard front and or back, you can transition from Kentucky bluegrass, which is the short-rooted grass that's on lawns, got roots that go down maybe four or five inches. I mean, you can see that when you roll out the sod to to cover up the, the bald spots on, on your lawn. You can replace all of that with native plants and native foods and food forests at your home. There are a couple of permaculturists, Eric Tonsmeyer, and um, I get you the name of the other yeah, we can, his, his we can link to that in the show notes. They, they wrote a book called Paradise Lot. And they were out in the wilderness practicing their permaculture and decided that they wanted to try this out, see if it would work in the city. So they bought a tenth of an acre house and lot in Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is an old industrial town. And the land was bare. It was absolutely bare. And over several years, they turned front and backyards into food forests and provided, I think it was somewhere around half, half of their food mm. from, from these trees and perennials 
that grow in the area and just get better every year. Anybody can do that. I and mean, Holyoke is, you know, is New England and it's chilly, but they could do it there. And then, of course, people like Elliot Coleman are putting up greenhouses that produce organic food year-round. And some people can do that. You can grow quite a bit of food in a few window boxes, for that matter, if you have a place where they can get enough light. And again, supporting farmers at your farmer's markets that are growing food in a regenerative and organic manner. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to tell you more about our sponsor. Buffy's new comforter, The Breeze, is 100% plant-based and cruelty-free, which means no down, no polyester, but made entirely from eucalyptus fiber, which helps us to stay cozy without overheating. It's softer than cotton, hypoallergenic, and eucalyptus uses 10 times less water than cotton to grow. And the best part is that you can try one in your own bed for 30 nights free. If you don't love it, you can return it at no cost. For $20 off your Buffy comforter, visit Buffy.co and enter your discount code GREENDREAMER. Again, that's B-U-F-F-Y dot C-O and GREENDREAMER for $20 off. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow? The Regeneration International website and Facebook page has lots of good news about what people are doing. Even more so, I would say in a self-serving way that our Facebook page, which is Facebook slash BioForClimate, specializes in good news. And there are stories from all over the world of people turning dead land around, people in third world countries that had to move to cities in order to make a living, coming back to the land because the land has been, has been restored with government or NGO support or just community support. People are figuring out how to do it and they come back together or come back home and start doing it with some stunning successes. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I say, good morning, the sun is shining, or maybe not, but good morning and it's time to get out of bed. That's what inspires me. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Oh, continuing to eat good, fresh, and organic foods, uh, hopefully regeneratively grown. My only hesitation about saying that is that there are many, many people who deserve that food who can't afford it. And there are people who are working on making it more affordable, and that touches on the whole issue of racial and economic justice. I would, I would highly recommend one organization. It's called Soul Fire Farm. Yes, I just chatted with Leah Penniman the other day. With Leah, so. okay. Well, Leah is just a wonderful, wonderful example, wonderful person who is doing this work. And, and we need Soul Fire Farms everywhere. And there's really no, no good reason why we can't do that with a change in emphasis on how we live on Earth. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? That's the power of nature to heal. It never ceases to astonish. Ecologists and land managers 
and just anybody who pays attention, even a little bit of attention to what goes on when the natural world is assaulted, is astonished by how well, when it's treated right, that it, it heals and regenerates the life that had appeared to go away. Thank you so much for this insightful conversation and sharing your expertise with us. We would, of course, love to keep learning from you. So where can we follow your work and support you online? Bio for Climate. That's B as in boy, I-O, number four, climate.org. And we have lots of videos and commentary and you can look at our compendium. It's a free download. Uh, all kinds of interesting things for anybody who wants to look. And finally, what lasting words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? These are very frightening times. People are freaking out all over. The anxiety level in children and young people is huge. They can sense what's going on, maybe even more than adults. And we need to proactively help them. We need to address the root causes of climate change and begin restoring life to land everywhere we can, from a front yard to a national park to an entire continent. We're in a whole lot of trouble, but there are still many positive and oh, productive steps that we can take to avert the calamities heading our way. There's no time to lose. Whether you have a balcony with space for some native plants or a front, backyard, or garden where you can experiment with what it takes to regenerate life and biodiversity on your own land, let's begin restoring life to as many places as we can. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show and it's been helpful and meaningful to you in any way, I really hope you'll consider supporting the show and joining our Green Dreamer network by going to greendreamer.com support. If you're already a listener patron, thank you, thank you so much. It really supports the ongoing production of the show. So thank you so much. As always, you can find our show notes at greendreamer.com 136 for episode 136. You can reach me with feedback on how we can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane and at Green Dreamer Podcast. Finally, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.